0: It is 6.08, almost 6.09 here on a Saturday evening. It is steamy, 94 degrees here uh, after six o'clock. That is pretty amazing, folks. Obviously, for anybody who's outside today, you felt it. And I was actually outside at a pretty unique event pulling together. I took part <laughs> in a tug of war across the Mississippi River. It was all a fundraiser that WCCO television has been putting on. And certainly if you watch WCCO TV, you've seen you know some of the ads, some of the stories about it to raise money for Fraser, which is an organization. It's the leading uh, provider of autism services in the state of Minnesota. First of all, I, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, this is not your mother's or your, your grandkids' type of war or your back-in-elementary-school type of war. We had professionals advising us. Um, there are apparently professional or, or like clubs that are devoted to tug of war, Jonathan. I don't know if you're aware of this. It used to be an Olympic sport.
3: Are you serious? Yes. Oh, it was an Olympic sport back in when the early modern Olympics started back in the late 1800s. Okay.
0: Well, these people who were advising us were very serious. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, – we were – We had to practice. We had the technique. It's really hard. You only go for two minutes. And I know that sounds crazy. And I'm may i definitely not one of the people who's best in shape who was participating today. But I can tell you even those who are in extremely good shape found it very challenging. Uh, Some people did end up in the river, though voluntarily.
3: That's what I was going to say. You don't usually have a tug-of-war where a big old river – is in between the well, two think, the two sides. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it was something like Minneapolis versus St. Paul. Yep. So it was, uh, for instance, the Wild was against Minnesota United. Yep. They had uh, Pearson's against Central Roofing. So they, they had that was kind of the uh, the Twins were against the St. Saint Paul Saints. Right, and, right. Uh, so which is kind of a, a clever idea, but I did, uh, I did I did I
3: did like the one. I I don't know if I didn't see this one, but Glam Doll Donuts going against the Minnesota oh my God, Roller God, for, Girls.
0: They had like they they were the best dressed. Definitely. The Glendale Yes. They really had cool outfits. I, I will have to find pictures of that. Yeah. it's it's it, Go to WCCO.com and, and see it. But it, it was it was, um, it was was a lot of fun. It was hot out there, but I was surprised just how difficult it was. And I guess I didn't I, – somehow this is triggering a bell for me that this was once an Olympic sport. But there are people who take this very seriously. Yeah. They practice. They have teams. They have clubs. And they were coaching us. And so I fell. They're like – Get up! <laughs>
3: Get up! I, 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 it, it's not something that I would really know about. I don't. I don't frequent tug of war clubs, but it doesn't really just, surprise me because there's really a club for everything.
0: I guess there about. is. I guess there is. If you can have
3: basket weaving clubs and cheese yeah. making clubs and uh, clubs for you know you're, you're, chess clubs, yeah, uh, you can have clubs for basically any. And it is
0: an activity, right? It's and a, it's a some people would say it's a sport. Um, I think it is a sport having participated poorly <laughs> this morning. Uh, but I guess the station raised $204,000 for uh, Fraser, which is an extraordinary amount. But I-, I think it definitely is a sport. There were certain techniques. Mine, mine was faulty. <laughs> um, but uh, And then uh, they-, they also kind of positioned people. We had sort of like the older, lighter people. But then they gave like some professionals to Frank's team because – Somehow our team weighed more, but I think we had more people. Mike Max was the anchor, and that's a very important position. But in some of the other teams, Mike Max is—he's is a very fit, athletic guy. I saw
3: him. I saw him as the anchor on your team. Right. There's a video up at wcco.com showing the the, the match between Team Schaefer, Team Vassalero. and I saw Max. You could see the, the determination.
0: Oh, I know. In, I think he was like. I, I think he was like, why? Why do I have these? Women on my team, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, he was he was really good. But you know, he's he's you know he's a very fit, athletic guy. But some of the other anchors, we're talking giant people here, like really, really giant, as in Minnesota Vikings linebacker size. You know, and Mike Max is not that. I mean, he's a strong guy and very athletic. But uh, anyway, I learned a lot about, I guess, what is a legitimate sport, the sport of tug of war. I, I am disappointed though that
3: I did not see anyone fall into the river. Well and that's what and, in, in the tug of war phase.
0: Right. And and my well, my daughter was like, I thought there were she came with me, my teenage daughter, and she was like I I thought people were gonna be flipping into the river and I was like, No. Uh on our team, Molly Rosenblatt and Jeff Wagner jumped into the river and then swam to shore and I posted that on my Twitter. But I just wasn't gonna go there. <laughs> I just wasn't going to go there. See,
3: the thing I'm thinking of is you you remember you're talking about going back to school days where you would have tug of wars and that sort of thing. Going back to those school carnivals. The the thing that I'm looking at with you guys going back and forth, it's like the teacher in the dunk booth. You want to see the teacher you want to see the teacher get all wet, get dunked. That's what I want to see from the news anchors. I want to see y'all get dunked in the river.
0: I don't know la 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 la, la. I yeah, I anyway we did raise a lot of money and and it was an and that's extraordinary most, event yes that's it the is. most important thing it is but it was um and really a gorgeous setting and they had the whole river shut down and it was it was very interesting but that was I mean I have been to tugs of war before but is it tug of wars or tugs of war
3: It's a good question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a good question. Send it to Heather Brown. Okay. All right folks, um we are going to take a break. When we come back um I'll intro actually an interview. I did actually this last Sunday, but I thought it'd be worth revisiting. Uh, Senator Al Franken's new book uh, debuted late this past week as number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate by Al Franken. And I kind of delved into the areas uh, that I thought were most interesting, and that was some of his years in Saturday Night Live. As well as that extraordinary 2008 election. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I'll revisit that interview I did with Senator Al Franken about his. It is 94 degrees, 616. If you're just joining us, uh, I was talking before the break that uh, last week I did interview uh, Senator Al Franken about his new book, which is, regardless of your politics, it's awfully interesting. He talks very candidly, as you will hear. About his years in Saturday Night Live, the loss of his friends like Jim Belushi or John Belushi, excuse me, uh, to drug use. He talks about it candidly about that 2008 election that even though I covered it, I had actually forgotten how crazy that election was. And obviously, the recount was extraordinary. But he's very candid about that. He's very candid about the role that his wife played, uh, Franny, and in terms of her admission. That she was an alcoholic, how that helped save the campaign. Uh, and at the back end of this, I'll talk about some of the things that, that you know are in the book that I didn't really get a chance to visit with him with. but um, as I said, the book is topping uh, probably the best the top of the bestseller list, which is the New York Times bestseller list. It debuted as number one this week. Uh, so it's obviously gotten uh, an extraordinary amount of success and attention. Uh, it's very funny. Some of the captions are very funny. Uh, and I actually wish that I had it right now, but I actually loaned it. There was a, a, a list of people who were wanting it in the newsroom, so I had to offer it up to somebody who was on her way to vacation. But it, it, it's a very interesting and very candid look uh, at Senator Al Franken's you know, childhood, teenage, first career with Saturday Night Live, why he left Saturday Night Live. You'll hear that. That's really interesting to all of those of you who have been passed over for a job before. Uh, that, that's in there as well. And then coming out of it, I'll uh, chat about some of the other things that are in the book, uh, including uh, the situation now in the United States Senate, those hearings uh, with Betsy DeVos and Jeff Sessions. Uh, it was Senator Franken asking the critical question that ended up uh, was Senator Sessions saying – then Senator Sessions saying that he personally had no involvement, had not any contact, any contacts with Russians, that turned out not to be true – And uh, during this interview, I'm going to double check something because it looks like Senator Sessions now, or I'm sorry, Attorney General Sessions, will be the next to testify. And that could come as soon as Tuesday before the Senate Intelligence Committee. So a lot to talk about. But here now, my conversation with Senator Al Franken.
1: Yeah, you know, there was uh, drug use during that time. And, you know, uh, it started getting out early on, uh, you know, the show would kind of say you can't do a 90 minute live show every week and do cocaine and the fact is that probably a number of people on the show felt that you can't do a 90 minute live show every week and not do cocaine and and yourself I myself I, I I used to say that I only did enough cocaine to stay awake long enough to make sure people didn't do too much cocaine but it, it, it obviously, when Belushi died, <laughs> that was a wake-up call. And Farley, uh, years later, uh, was someone who must have gone to 11, 12 rehabs and was the, the sweetest guy, and he, he ultimately um, uh, died of basically a whole combination of things. But, no, it's very tragic, and, and Stuart Smalley, my character, who was about recovery and he was a codependent he, he was uh, uh, as was I and I had my my partner Tom Davis, I write about his his use and you wrote a very moving blog post about Franny's ad during our and campaign. And we want to get to that,
0: too. But I do want to ask you one more question about Saturday Night Live. I didn't know, and it, it served as a source of inspiration here uh, amongst us newsies who've all gotten passed over for key jobs, that the reason you left Saturday Night Live is you didn't get the Weekend Anchor update job. Yeah, I mean, I, what, what, what if you'd gotten that job? Would you be sitting here today?
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I did 15 seasons on the show and Kevin Nealon was going to leave the, the job, and I kind of felt, you know, I had done a lot of the political stuff on the show. But ultimately, I think they made the right decision. They went with Norm MacDonald, and I had by then shown that I was kind of a progressive, and I don't think that the, sh- the ethic of the show was not to have a political bias, and I think that probably the host of the num- you know of that segment should not be known as a liberal or, or a conservative.
0: Let's go to the two thousand. First, before we get to the two thousand eight race and, and your wife's role in it, we want to show this picture of you and your wife Franny when you met when you were eleven. I think it looks like you, that's how old
1: you look. You actually were what eighteen? Uh, I think that picture were nineteen. Nineteen. So we met at. I. She was seventeen when I met her, and uh, in college, and uh, we met freshman year and. Uh, yeah, we've been married now f- almost 42 years. Uh, many, have, of them, many of them happy. Many of them
0: <laughs> happy. I had forgotten how, how brutal that 2008 race was all with right. all that went on. Uh, you have a chapter in the book saying Franny saves
1: the, the campaign. campaign. Yeah. All right. Tell us about that. And we have some video from that ad. Okay, well, remember it was a nasty campaign. It and, was very nasty. Yeah, yeah, and the Republicans kind of took everything I ever wrote in comedy and put it through a machine called the dehumorizer which kind of took the context out and they went after me really hard uh, and Franny didn't like that and so she did this ad where she spoke about being a mom who was an alcoholic there was a line in that uh, saying you know where she says how can a mother's to such beautiful kids children be an alcoholic which spoke to the shame that mothers feel and I guess all alcoholics feel and you wrote a a beautiful blog post saying that this was the best political ad you had seen because it actually might help people and I think it did and two days after that ad aired here we did a debate with uh, Norm Coleman and Dean Barkley in a gymnasium and the floor was filled and bleachers were filled and Franny got a standing ovation and the courage of that ad—it made me cry when I saw it—and uh, I would not have won, of course, without Franny, for all kinds of reasons, but especially that ad. Well, it took—it took you a while to win. Um, yeah, I remember.
0: <laughs> but, but <laughs> I recall. After the recount was my over in in July, I believe you were finally sworn in. Yeah. One of the things that I think is fun in the book is that you have all these pictures. With great captions, and we do have the one uh, of you and Vice President Mondale right before you're sworn in. Uh, if we can pull that one up, because oh, yeah. I love the caption. Uh, this photo of me and Vice President Mondale is taken. This is right before, before I'm I was sworn, sworn in, in and,
1: and uh, I'm holding well, uh, the Wellstone Family Bible. And the caption f- for me for this photo is me saying, "Can I do this?" and Fred saying, "I don't know." <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. Um, there's
0: so much uh, in in the book, really, um, in terms of um, your work in the Senate. I, I think you've gotten an awful lot of attention for your role in these hearings with Jeff Sessions, Bessie DeVos. One of the, the anecdotes I heard in, in the uh, I wrote about in the book that I found so striking is that then Senator Sessions, when you had your first grandchild his wife knitted you a baby blanket
1: yes uh,
0: a, a, another grandchild comes along will attorney general sessions wife be knitting you a baby blanket
1: probably not now uh jeff and i were f- very friendly we we're both on judiciary committee um but i told him before this the hearings you know i said eat your wheaties and he knew what that meant and, and you know i don't uh we we may be complete opposites in terms of politics but that the, that you have to be uh collegial you have to be uh in order to get anything done and very often i've done uh legislation with republicans that on anything else i <laughs> i completely disagree with but uh it it's you there's only 100 of you and so it's like you're in a small town and there's no... Percentage in alienating uh, uh, another member of the town. All right. Well, listen, Senator Franken. There's much more in the book.
0: Obviously, it's already on the bestseller list. We do want to plug your book signing, uh, one o'clock at the Common Ground, uh, Common Good Books on Snelling Avenue yeah, in Garrison Fort Snell, Garrison Keillor's store. Thank you so much, Senator, and uh, congratulations on the success of the book. Thank you, guys. right And that was my interview last Sunday uh, with Senator Franken on his new book, Al Franken, Giant of the Senate by Al Franken. Uh, That book signing was last Sunday, so don't go to that bookstore (laughs) and try and find Al Franken because he won't be there. Uh, You heard the anecdote about Jeff Sessions, though, is that when Senator Franken's first grandchild was born, Senator Sessions' wife knit the baby, a a special baby blanket. Senator Franken saying, uh, when I asked him, well, if you have another grandchild, Are you going to get another blanket from Jeff Sessions' wife? And he's saying, I don't think so. Something that's just breaking today, and it's not clear if it's going to be a public testimony or else behind closed doors, but apparently Jeff Sessions, now the attorney general, has agreed to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, this is going to be really interesting to see what happens. There's so much here. One of the questions that came up in the Senate Intelligence Committee Testimony of former FBI Director James Comey, and this was obviously from Democrats, but they were wondering why, if Jeff Sessions was supposed to recuse himself from all things involving the Russia investigation, why did Jeff Sessions – was he personally involved in firing Director Comey? Uh, Another thing that will be interesting to see is that uh, Comey testified that at one point he went – to Attorney General Jeff Sessions after one of these infamous Trump meetings when Trump actually ordered, the president ordered everyone else out of the room except for himself and Director Comey and then had this conversation that, you know, Comey took notes on. But after that meeting or after that happened, Comey testified that he went to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and said, never leave me alone with the president again. And that's something that I'm sure – the senators will ask of Jeff Sessions. Uh, again, when we figure out if that's going to be behind closed doors or out you know, in the public with the TV cameras going, we will let you know. But that should be a very interesting development. Uh, later on in our 8 o'clock hour, I'm going to chat with Professor David Schultz about uh, the Comey testimony. One of the things I think is so interesting is that a new poll is out just tonight that talks about the fact that about 80% of Hillary Clinton voters say they believe Jim Comey's version of events. And guess what? Just about 80% of Donald Trump voters believe Donald Trump's, the president's version of events. So I, I just find that fascinating that there's that much of a divide and that much, or a continued divide. And also, if you look too at the different way different news media are is reporting this, especially when you take a look at Fox News versus let's say, the New York Times, the difference is is just staggering. And and clearly, I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump still has the backing of of the vast majority, overwhelming majority of his supporters as most Republicans. And I think it's – if that changes, if that little fact changes, then I think he's got problems. Well, listen, folks, uh, on this steamy evening, we are going to visit uh, coming up in our next half hour – with Joe Kimball, he's a longtime Twin Cities reporter, worked with the Star Tribune for years, and is really the uh, the expert on the Congdon Mansion murders. This is the 40th anniversary coming up this June, later this month, uh, of the murders at Glen Sheen. And Joe Kimball, I've talked to him before about this subject. I've, I've been going over his book again, which is still uh, available for purchase. It's called Joe Kimball's Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. Uh, we're going to talk to him because I think a lot of people – First of all, I think there's a lot of fascination with, with those murders, even though they were so long ago. But also I think a lot of people actually go to the North Shore. Uh, it's probably nicer in the North Shore today than it is <laughs> right here. It's probably a little cooler. But a lot of people go there and they go and visit this historic mansion. And one of the things Joe writes about is that when you go go to this mansion, which is so famous for these murders, the tour guys don't really kind of focus on the murders. They, they They more focus on the architecture, which is certainly significant – and perhaps the history of the family. But uh, anyways, it's a fascinating story, and it's one of the um, really most interesting crime stories in in recent Minnesota history. So coming up, we will chat with Joe Kimball, the author of Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. Uh, That's coming up next. But first, we do have to break and get you the steamy weather forecast, and then we will be joined by author Joe Kimball.
1: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It It is
0: 634 in the Twin Cities. Well, in just uh, a few days, really, it will be the 40th anniversary of the murders of Elizabeth Congdon, who was smothered with a pillow, and her night nurse who was beaten with a candlestick holder at Mrs. Congdon's home, uh, Glensheen, Uh, At the time, she was the wealthiest woman in Minnesota. Uh, In a long, tangled story, her son-in-law was first tried. Then her daughter was tried, acquitted. Uh, The daughter, Marjorie Caldwell, or Marjorie Congdon, and then who became Caldwell, has uh, uh, an infamous history that I I don't think has any parallel that that I know of. Uh, She has sort of been in and out of trouble for many, many years, uh, the author of the fascinating book and the definitive book about the Congdon murders, uh, which we are we are revisiting now, the 40th anniversary, is Joe Kimball. And again, his book, Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. Joe, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Oh, thank you, Esme. It's uh, great to talk to you.
0: Oh, absolutely. All right. Why don't you take us back because this is pre-OJ. This is pre just about everything. I mean, this was the all-consuming story of 1977, and then went on for years, kind of set the stage for us, because it's a remarkable story about an unbelievable woman uh, who is still alive today. And I I want to hear, I understand you and your wife, Julie, recently ran into her. But tell us about sort of what happened back in 1977.
2: Well, Elizabeth Congdon was the uh, last surviving child of Chester Congdon, who built the mansion when you drive by on London Road there in Duluth. Uh, he was a mining magnet, as we like to say in the paper, and made uh, lots of money up there with iron ore. Uh, and his youngest da- daughter, Elizabeth, uh, lived there her whole life and never married. So she's actually Miss Congdon. Uh In the 1930s, though, she adopted two infant daughters and raised them at the mansion.
0: And, and that was, you know, you were, I mean, that was pretty unusual for a single woman. To yeah. adopt back then, wasn't it?
2: Oh, very unusual. Uh, but uh, Congans uh, had the money in this way, and uh, you know she was certainly able to do it, uh, you know, financially and and apparently for the most part emotionally.
0: Right. Um, and one now, now we're, we're, let me ask you: Was was uh, Marjorie and the other sister who were adopted were they actually blood sisters? Because their paths certainly. have took very different routes. Yeah, they
2: were not. They were, they were not. Okay, they were all right. Separately from different states, uh, okay. slightly different ages, about a year or so apart.
0: Okay. Yep. What was what sort of the first sign that something was amiss with Marjorie?
2: Well, Marjorie got herself into uh, quite a bit of trouble as a young girl, uh, according to all reports. Uh, the kind of thing where she'd be at the department store in Duluth and either take something and uh, then get caught, and then her mother would have to come and pay for it later. I also heard that she would uh, uh, order uh, lots of clothing and just say, put it on my mother's bill, and then her mother would throw a fit later, but then apparently went back and paid for it. Uh, So so I'm not sure there was a whole lot of discipline there. Uh, And there was even a story that uh, they had horses back then when when the girls were younger. And there's a carriage house there when you you, uh, take the tour. And Marjorie was not taking very good care of her horse. Uh, according to the, the caretaker there at that time. And Miss Congan finally decided, okay, we're getting rid of your horse. You're not taking care of it. And Marjorie threw a fit. And then later that afternoon, the caretaker saw her near the horses and startled her, and she ran away dropping uh, a lot of pills on the ground. And the caretaker was pretty certain that she was trying to harm the horses in one of those cases where if I can't have, have my horse, uh, no one else can either. Wow. And he told Ms. Congan about it, and as far as he knew, though, his his stories later were that nothing was done. Well,
0: she eventually marries uh, Roger Caldwell.
2: Yes. She had actually a first family uh, earlier in Minneapolis. She had seven children. Oh, that's right.
0: Okay. She has seven children. And and I assume most – they're still alive,
2: well, yes, yeah, they, they all, they, they. There's a very interesting story about that too. Um, after the, she was divorced, then in the in the early '70s, and remarried in 1975, this man Roger Caldwell, who's the central figure in the case, and they were living in Denver, in the Denver area. Um, then, I, and they were broke. They'd cut off Marjorie from all the mansion funding. She'd gone up there one too many times and asking her mother for a check for twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. And her mother had suffered a stroke and was uh, partially paralyzed. And uh, they felt uh, some of the people who were watching over Miss Congdon's money felt that Marjorie was manipulating her. And, uh, you know, pulling all this money. Out. And 20000 is
0: this is 1977, so yes. I mean, $20,000 is still a whole lot of money in, sure. in this day and age.
2: But One nurse said that she saw Marjorie come in and shoo everybody out and then took her hand and kind of signed the check with her, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. There also was a million-dollar trust in 1977 that Miss Congen gave to each of the girls. Uh, of her two daughters, and they were supposed to uh, you know, use the, the interest from it to, to live, on, live on. And somehow Marjorie convinced the bankers in Minneapolis to give her the whole million dollars and spent it within two years.
0: Wow, okay. So um, they're broke, and then comes this plot.
2: Yes, then they're broke, and then in the summer of uh, June 27th, coming up uh, 40 years ago in 1977, someone broke into the mansion and encountered Ms. Congdon's night nurse on the big grand stairway when you take the tour. It's the beautiful one that goes, looks out onto the lake, uh, because Ms. Congdon needed round-the-clock nursing care. And uh, the nurse was startled by the intruder, came to see what was happening with a flashlight, and was brutally beaten to death on that staircase. Uh, just uh, the way it's been described at the trials in the court files, uh, it, it's almost unbelievable how brutal it was. And then the killer went upstairs, and, and they don't like to talk about it on the tours. But it's the first bedroom around to the right from the staircase. Uh, Miss Congdon was in her bed. And and folks, if you if you go go on,
0: if you go up to Glen Sheen and you want to know about which which room is which, you have it all spelled out in your book, which yeah. again is Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. So I know, and I know a lot of people go up there in the summer, and it is it's a beautiful home. But I think I think that's what's so interesting. So she. He, he, Somebody goes right in there and and basically smothers this elderly lady who is half paralyzed.
2: Right, she couldn't fight back very well and certainly couldn't flee when she heard the uh, the terrible fuss on the staircase. So she would have been lying there in, in terror uh, as this happened uh, right below her. And then he came in and held the pillow over her face for extended time. I mean, you know, in the movies it looks like it takes about ten seconds, and uh, the trial testimony. Uh, indicated that it would have been many, many minutes before wow. it, uh, she would have actually been dead. Wow.
0: Okay, um, Roger ends up being arrested and tried.
2: Yes. And uh, convicted. They, they didn't tell us a much. The first 10 days or so, they didn't tell us really what was going on, and they were just saying it was a burglary gone awry, and someone had broken in stolen jewelry, which is true. Uh, but, then, but behind the scenes, from the very beginning, they had this... Uh, uh, tips from the family that you better check Marjorie and her husband in Denver because they've been pestering for money and have been. Uh, they were deeply in debt at the time. They were spending money they didn't have, and so Roger was within about two weeks or so arrested and went on trial. Uh, they moved it to Brainerd because of uh, publicity, uh, pretrial publicity, and, and in a three-month trial, Roger was convicted of the two murders.
0: Right, and then uh, it's it's it was almost the next day. Wasn't it that she was picked up? Yes. Marjorie was picked up, and she's tried. Yeah. And she gets a, a young, younger Ron
2: Meshbesher, uh, and he gets her off. Yes, he had a whole extra year to work on the case. He knew exactly what was in the prosecutor's uh, uh, back pocket because he, they'd used it all in the first trial. So he was able to pick away at, at many things, uh, raising some reasonable doubt. And, of course, it's harder to prove uh, that someone planned uh, a murder rather than committed it. And we know Marjorie was in in Colorado that day. I mean, she was seen multiple times that weekend. In fact, so many times you almost wonder if she was uh, kind of building up an alibi. Right.
0: And then um, so she gets acquitted. So then Roger's case is reopened and he ends up sort of doing a plea deal because he's been in prison for a few years. And he pleads to second degree murder. Yes. Okay.
2: Yes, there were a couple of new items in Marjorie's trial that hadn't been available to the defense in, in Roger's first trial. The Minnesota Supreme Court ruled that those things were significant enough, and I beg to disagree with them. I think both of, uh, both of the two new items were, were not really valid evidence, but they agreed that it, Roger deserved a second trial. Okay. And the big problem for the prosecutors in Duluth is, well, they just lost the Marjorie case, and it's now, by the time this went through the courts, it's five years later, and witnesses had died and moved and forgotten things. And they were actually very worried that uh, they might lose again, you know, that, that the second case against Roger sure. would, would be an acquittal, in which case the murder of the century in Duluth is unsolved, and they, they look like they've bungled it badly.
0: So so he ends up pleading guilty to a lesser charge It gets out, but he ends up um, sort of dying under – Odd circumstances, to say the least.
2: Well, yes. Uh, I, I went for the paper many times out to, to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where he, he grew up and he moved back there after he got out to talk with him. And I always had the sense that he was hoping that Marjorie would take care of him because she ended up getting some of the money from the mansion, from the tr- uh, the trusts and the, the inheritance. And Roger was holding out hope living very frugally was buying shirts at the Salvation Army in and, and, and really pretty desperate straits. But he always thought somehow that she'd come through. But then, of course, she never did. In fact, she married another guy, a th- her third husband, without even divorcing Roger or telling him that she was remarried. So at about 10 years, 11 years after the murders, Roger realized this, nothing was going to happen, and he actually killed himself in La Trobe.
0: All right then this the second I mean and we're chatting with Joe Kimball here the secrets of the Congdon Mansion uh, a long story short um, the sec, the third husband Wally ends up dying too yes and obviously it's um, she's is she's initially charged with that isn't isn't she but then they drop those charges yes. And we're talking about she Marjorie yes
2: Marjorie um, Marjorie actually soon after um, after she was acquitted for the the murder case. She was caught burning down a house in Mound in Minnesota and uh, actually served two years in prison for that, for arson. Uh, And she's already remarried to Wally Higgin, the third husband by then. When she was released from the uh, Shakopee Women's Prison, they moved to Arizona into a tiny little town called Ajo. And suddenly houses kind of in their neighborhood started on fire, uh, like a dozen or more. And police at first thought that it was uh, kids you know, breaking into snowbirds' houses and having parties and starting a fire, but one night they actually caught her pretty red-handed outside a neighbor's house with a kerosene-soaked rag and matches. And you detail all of this
0: in your—I mean, all of this crazy stories in your book. She ends up doing some some prison time. I want to take a quick break, Joe, because I do. Um, there's a string of arsons. She ends up doing, you know, some prison time for that. Um, You know, the charges, the murder charges against the third husband are dropped, but I actually really want to hear the story of of you and your wife, Julie Kramer, who I've known for years, how, how, how you guys ran into each other and what she said because this woman is still alive. I mean, how old is she?
2: She'll be 85 in July. Wow,
0: okay. All right, Let, let's take a quick break because um, I want I want to hear this story and then if we have time, we'll get back into it. And again, folks, the book is The Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. Uh, Joe Kimball is the author. So let's take a quick break. We'll have more of with... a Esme Murphy with you here on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 649. Chatting with Joe Kimball, his book is... Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. It is being it has been forty years this month since uh, the murders at Glen Sheen, at the Congdon Mansion. Uh, Joe Kimball is the the authority on these murders and uh, the main sort of suspect in all. Uh, Marjorie Congdon Caldwell, uh, she's basically gets you know spends like much of between two thousand and. 2010 sort of in and out of legal trouble for arsons and fraud, right in Arizona.
2: Right. And uh, when she was uh, sentenced to the, the second Arizona uh, arson case, that's when her husband died the night she was supposed to go to prison and uh, mysteriously, and they they,
0: they they gave her one day to go back and take care of him. Care of and then him. she's dead and then he's dead. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. Let me ask you though, and this is all when she's in her 70s here,
2: right? Yeah, she was in probably in the late 60s then. So um, late the 60s, yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: All right, so, so she is still alive today. She is 85 years old. She has been accused of two murders, uh, obviously acquitted, charges were dropped, many other crimes, arsons, all kinds of things. You and your wife, Julie Kramer, run into her?
2: Yes, I... I- <laughs> After she got out of uh, prison, she moved to Tucson, and I kept track and uh, you know was always hoping she'd uh, want to do some interviews and she never never did well we were Julie and I were down there uh, doing some book stuff, and uh, we found some people who knew her and, and they invited us to dinner and told us some good you know fascinating marjorie stories and They mentioned that every morning she likes to walk her dog in this dog uh, off leash park a uh, big dog uh, like a Rottweiler. And so we thought, well, let's let's just swing by there the next morning. And sure enough, she did show up with her big dog and and walked over uh, into the park. And I, I got ready to go wow. into the fence, and I told Julia, you know, and
0: Ju- Julia was also a, a, a fabulous reporter, you know, on the, and producer on the TV side. But, oh my goodness, you must have just been well, i, her, I here. Her, uh,
2: you know, uh, I, I love you. <laughs> Uh, and then she set me up with my with my phone, you know, on a video thing, <laughs> just so I could walk over there. <laughs> uh, luckily, she came, she'd forgotten something in her car, and she came out without the dog. So I went over to her as she's at her car and uh, explained who I was and that I had hoped to talk to her uh, about her side of the story because she hasn't done much of that. And she looked at me evilly and said, I know who you are. You've been stalking me for years. <laughs> And I said, well, I, I don't, I haven't even seen you since your parole hearing in, you know, 2004. But uh, I'm sorry you feel that way. And she said, if you don't get out of here now, I'm going to call the police. Of course, this is a public, public park. park. Parking lot. And and uh, you know, what are you going to do? Argue with her? And plus, she had the dog. Wow. <laughs> okay. And when was this? Uh, this was uh, not this past summer, but the one B- uh, winter, do it the one before. Yep. And she's still there. She just bought a new house down there. Uh, kind of keep track of the. Uh, of all her movements, uh, people call me once in a while from down there and say, "Marjorie just joined our church." This Marjorie uh, Hagan, and we googled her, and, and we see you've written a lot about her. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I've got, and I think I've told you this
0: before that that my husband, um, when he first moved to Minnesota, lived in, in an apartment um, and, and worked. He lived in an apartment on York Plaza in Edina, and then he also worked in a store. And Ron si- uh sister. Uh, owned the store next to theirs, uh, next to my husband's family. And so he would see Marjorie, and this is sort of older teen, um, and and he would have dinner occasionally there with his family. And, you know, he didn't know the whole backstory and sort of later found it out. But he said she could be absolutely charming.
2: Yes, that's uh, the key thing, I think. When people first meet her, the uh, dozens of people have told me, you know, she seems so nice and she's bubbly, effervescent. But it's after, after a while, usually a few months, when she starts uh, reneging on promises and uh, kind of backstabbing. It's, and, it's, it's and people,
0: and people end fine. up dead.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, all these years later, uh, people really seem to care about the case. And, and there's a couple of reasons. One is they do the tours. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, people are going through there, you know, uh, tens of thousands every summer. And lots of them really heard about the case, want to know more about it. It's such an Agatha Christie type you know, yeah and uh, and
0: and of course, this was way before the internet so so this is
2: <laughs> i mean your your book is it where can people get your book, Joe Well, you know, for about ten years uh, the the mansion loosened up about ten years ago and started selling my book in their gift shop. Uh, they decided that it, that uh, they 'd rather have me tell people about the murders than than being asked about it themselves, but this year, they just uh, went back on that and pulled the book and banned it from sale, you can still take it there, because they want to focus on the legacy of the Congdon family and the architecture of the house and the gardens and things. Uh, And I think that's a big mistake for a couple of reasons. One is I think lots of people do have this interest and also they were making the money instead of Barnes & Noble when they were selling it okay. and the university has, now their tuition raises, there's all this concern about it and, you know, they weren't making
0: That's uh, right, because it's the university of Min- Yeah, university so, okay. of
2: Duluth owns it So
0: so can, can people buy your book at Barnes & Noble? Yes,
2: yes, and okay. uh, the, the gift shops around town and the, there's some at Toby's on the way <laughs> Oh, Toby's! Yeah, <laughs> uh, Pick up a
0: sweet roll one of the right, giant right, caramel rolls
2: get- the book on the way up there and you can uh, kind of look at the map uh, between Hinkley and the Blue and and you'll know right where to go right where okay to look.
0: well, i just I think that there's so much interest in, in in the true crime genre and and this this is really the account of it uh and I do think that a lot of people love to go to the north shore, why not it's It's one of the great treasures. Of our state, and and obviously this mansion is gorgeous, but but to only tell one side and focus on the architecture and yeah, the gardens is yeah, certainly um, leaving out an awful lot of this amazingly bizarre story. So she lives down in Arizona. Um, fascinating stuff. Joe Kimball, thank you so much, uh, and again, Joe's book, Secrets of the Congdon Mansion. We certainly appreciate your time this evening. Thanks, me Okay, absolutely. Bye-bye. Great book, interesting stuff. Keep it here. You're listening to News Radio eight three zero WCCO.